We know you've been scared watching horror movies by yourself. Well, now you don't have to. Hang out with Ruminations of Redrum. All things horror, from movies to the latest spooky games we've played. Come hang out. But hurry. The killer's behind you! Be advised. Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the eighth overall episode of Twin Peaks, Episode 7, often known, depending where you look, as Season 1, Episode 8, Episode 8, or what the German regionalization team named The Last Evening. I'm your host, John. In Episode 7, Donna and James break into Jacoby's office and recover the half-heart necklace and Laura's cassette tape, then pick up Maddie at Easter Park, where Jacoby is assaulted into a heart attack by a masked man. Cooper wins a blackjack at One-Eyed Jacks and tips Jacques with the broken poker chip before getting a leery story from Jacques and coaxing him over the border into a dragnet, all while Audrey's there getting ready to entertain the owner, who later reveals himself as her father when he arrives after getting the Icelanders to sign the Ghostwood contract. Jacques gets arrested and almost escapes except for Andy shooting him, and is later killed by Leland Palmer at the hospital, but not before he implicates Leo in Laura's death. Nadine attempts suicide, Lucy reveals she's pregnant, and James gets into trouble for coke and his bike. Shelly is captured by Leo and would burn in the mill except for Catherine rescuing her, but they're likely still in there when Pete goes into the fire. Leo tries to kill Bobby, except Hank gets done threatening Josie and gaslighting Norma in time to shoot Leo first, and Cooper goes back to his room only to be shot three times at close range. Now, while Episode 7 is the conclusion to Season 1, we are not going to just be looking at it as the capper to that. We are going to look at it from the perspective, as we always do, of all Twin Peaks, or from all Twin Peaks. Um, and some of the questions that I have after watching everything and then coming back to this, um, how does the metaphysical surface in this episode? How do recordings work differently in Twin Peaks? What is surfacing when plans are realized? So before we go on uh, answer any of those um, those wide-spanning questions, uh, we're going to do it like we usually do and um, look into the behind-the-scenes stuff for what the, um, you know, the, the product... Oh, boy. So like we always do, before we go into Episode 7, looking into it through those uh, through those lenses, we are going to look at the production history from where it was when it was first created. It was written and directed by Mark Frost, the show co-creator, and um, it was filmed near the end of 1989. Um, 
which places it, it likely places it where Lynch's directing of episode two happened just after he got done um, filming Industrial Symphony Number no. One, which was kind of a visual art project um, that aired, or that um, <laughs> that recording was done in the middle of November. And that probably means that Lynch went straight in to um, to put together episode two, and then um, and then Frost started episode seven sometime near the beginning of December. As far as words that uh, Lynch might have had on this episode, uh, the editor Paul Treo, he says uh, during the Christmas week of 1989, he sat down with Frost and Lynch. You know when they were watching through the episode cut as. Um, as Lynch did with all the season one directors or most of the season one directors per Treo, um, Lynch's only comment that night was twin peaks was awfully busy that night. Wasn't it <laughs> now Frost had directed a single episode of Hill street blues before this, but why did he choose to pick, um, episode seven as the episode that he was going to direct? Well, it was, um, it was practical more than anything, you know, he couldn't afford to take the time away from prepping all the other episodes. So this was, um, this was the only one that he actually had time to direct. Um, as far as everyone's energy at the time, it was, um, it was near the end of the shoot of the whole season. Um, every, <laughs> uh, Frost said in, uh, reflections by Brad Dukes and same place where, uh, Trejo just, uh, just, uh, <laughs> gave us that information about Lynch. Um, Frost says, everyone was really gassed. <clears throat> he said, everyone was really gassed, but um, everybody put in a final push. You know, they, they got a boost because they knew they were right at the end. In relation to the uh, massive mound of uh, cliffhangers in this episode, uh, Frost said in Essential Wrapped in Plastic by John Thorne that, that, um, Frost wasn't really responsive to ABC's notes, and uh, he he'd always planned on having a ton of cliffhangers because he was aiming at getting the show renewed. Um, but to ABC, you know, they were expecting at least a certain amount of conclusion with this, and um, they uh, the the Peaks crew went so far as to like send fake scripts to ABC just to kind of keep everybody in the dark until it was too late to turn around. Greg Feinberg was the producer that had to deliver the scripts and uh, Phil Siegel from the ABC side. He's the one who like once he realized what was happening, he's the one who had to smooth things over on the ABC side. Um, and per Siegel in Reflections, um, I'm going to read this whole thing because it kind of explains um, it, it explains a perspective from the business side of how of how like standard um, television types were um, were seeing the the Lynch Frost uh, Productions team uh, making this show, Siegel said it became very difficult to get any degree of management out of it, and it was a very bizarre experience for me anyway because there were all sorts of walls in place to keep us away from the content. There were all kinds of muddiness surrounding that. And it was all designed to confuse. It was a group of people who you have to understand had never made television show before, and they didn't care. 
They did what they wanted to. It wasn't coming from a group of people whose intent was to keep a show on the air for five years. It was an experiment. And if to, and if to reinforce that a little bit, Essential Wrapped in Plastic had a note from Catherine Coulson uh, where she said, I think David really thought Twin Peaks was going to be a miniseries. I think he always intended it as a short-term project, but because of its popularity, everyone kind of got seduced into making it longer. And before I get roped into making more of it than what can be verified, I'm going to go into what, um, what the actors thought of working with Mark Frost. And these notes are all in reflections, which I cannot, I mean, the, the Treo quote about the business side alone, I mean, that, that book is so much more than the little bits that I'm delivering to you. And I highly recommend you get in Brad Duke's um, massive thing from 2014 that it's, it, it's like magic reading it. But anyway, we got James Marshall basically saying, you were working with one of the parents and Frost let you do your own thing. Um, so you you get the impression from more than just him that uh, trust seems easy from from Frost. <clears throat> you know, it's like we um, we hired these people to do their job, and we're going to let them do their job. Uh, Piper Laurie said he could he could tell me to do things that I wouldn't let other directors do. Vulgar specific things like rolling my eyes. He would give me these tiny little tidbits to fill moments and scenes to make them funnier. And, you know, then she she basically says um, she was timid about doing it, but he encouraged her and uh, she just really enjoyed working with him. And she even made a mention of working with him on on his movie Storyville. And then Richard Boehmer, um, he had a huge revelation about Ben Horn in this episode. He says, Mark Frost is really the one who put everything in gear for me. When Mark gave me the cigar, that prop absolutely let me know where to go with Ben. Before, I was floundering, like I was spitting in fireplaces, and I thought I was some kind of business guy, holding it, working with it, just what it brought out in me when I would arrogantly puff on it. The cigar really loosened me up. So it seems like this scene was after the sandwich scene in episode two, where Lynch kept pushing him and pushing him to eat more sandwich. Like at that point, um, I think um, getting pushed by Lynch really tuned um, Bamer into figuring out like, who is this guy? And then when he, um, when he got the cigar in this episode, you know, a few weeks later, he's like this, this is the answer to that question. I don't know. Maybe it didn't exactly happen that way, but the poetry seems uh, fairly accurate with the way um, Lynch and Frost work together, how their storytelling works together, and how happy accidents tend to just work themselves out on Twin Peaks. As far as how Frost filmed this, um, he doesn't he doesn't come off like he's a novice director. I mean, sure. You know, he, he directed the one episode of Hill street blues that was probably a little bit more by the numbers. So he kind of got used to some of the techniques there, but in this case, like he's, he's pretty self-assured, you know, it's like, you can tell he's getting ready to work on Storyville as a feature. Um, you know, he's, um, the, the, um, the way that Lucy's in the foreground when, um, when the cops are talking about Andy's uh, heroics, you know, it's like, you know, we get to see her 
uh, watering the plants and just, you know, like being all like, oh, oh, you know, getting, <laughs> you know, it's it's more about it's less about the um, the funny way that um, Hawk and Ed are talking about how uh, Andy saved Harry. And it's more about Lucy absorbing it. And it's just a really neat way, a depth of scene right there, too. Like you can get both of them at the same time without losing either of them. Frost used transition shots pretty well too. There was, um, the you know the 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 two that come to mind most is with um, with the way you zoom in on Jacoby's eye and then the um the roulette wheel superimposes over it, and um then there's Nadine flapping her blanket out to um to spread it out for her suicide scene, but the the blanket just kind of like pushes away the uh, the Josie scene. And, um, you know, it's just kind of like, it, it's almost like it's, um, the, the draft from the, uh, from the air pushed from that blanket, you know, it's like, it, it just, it's, it's interesting and it feels right too. Um, there's even a couple Lynchian moments here, like, you know, the, the, the bite, the bullet, you know, that the, the mouth close up. I mean, Lynch uses mouth close ups pretty regularly, but I'm not sure if he did up to this point. Um, or, you know, at least in, um, you know, things like a razor head, like, yeah, it wasn't brought to the scene, but it, you know, you, you get to, you get to see Cooper's eyes because he's the one, you know, like that's where he's absorbing the scene. And then Jacques, you know, it's like, you can see like every, every bit of his tongue and everything. Like it's, it's very, it's very creepy. And it, it says Lynch to a lot of people. And then it's like, oh, it's the um, it's supposed to be the straight lace guy here, but you know, he he gives one of the more iconic moments that people will remember about Twin Peaks even after you stop watching it. But besides stuff like that, Lynch really understands how to use sound design too. I mean, you you can um, you can hear the sound design even how he writes it into Secret History of Twin Peaks. You know, like they uh, they <laughs> they describe Angelo Badalamente music in a in a scene at the parsonage. Uh, so like it's it's just a thing that that Frost has. Like he understands how to use sound too. Maybe for different reasons, but you know they're there. Um, <clears throat> so here, you know, it's like the percussion um as mood you kind of get that with the way the um the the um the pounding when jacoby's having his heart attack um there's the there's the hawaii fake out at the beginning which is another interesting transition into the show um you know it's like we we see the uh, the palm trees painted on jacoby's office and we hear the shore and you know it's like we still don't know where the scene is i mean we can guess but you know it, it takes it takes a while of like moving the camera off to the side before we see james and donna entering jacoby's office so you know it's like sound transports you somewhere else even when you're somewhere while nadine was getting ready for the the suicide and like you know she was she was mouthing something there and um she didn't actually say it out loud and she wasn't even intending to it was just something that that wendy roby was doing by accident and frost really wanted to bring that out so he wanted he wanted her to say goodbye so they um 
they figure out how to do it later on in post-production where she's like listening to Patsy Cline's crazy because that makes her cry. And uh, she says goodbye in like 1500 different ways. And, <laughs> but, um, but Frost wanted to bring that out so that we could hear it too. And I know that's post-production same way how he recorded himself, uh, talking about Jacoby's results, even though when you pan over, it's a completely different doctor that's supposed to be saying the lines, but that's more of a, that's more of a thing that happens in Hollywood. You know, it's like a lot of times somebody speaks off camera and then they show the extra, um, you know, standing next to the, the main character. That's, um, I, I don't understand like the SAG rules or if it was a budget concern or whatever, but, um, sometimes like, actors will need to get some sort of bump up if they have a line. And um, I, I'm pretty sure that was just avoiding that rather than Frost trying to obscure himself uh, in the production. Now, there were a couple other random details that stuck out, like the man on the moon umbrella, you know, with the or with the uh, <laughs> one of Jacoby's umbrellas talking about, you know, and they sent a man to the moon. Um, that reminds me of a, of a contentious stamp in secret history. So that's a thing that Frost will go back to. Um, and then um, a couple of a couple of behind the scenes details from the actors. Um, Walter Olkowitz, who played Jacques Renault, apparently in the hospital scene when he's like duct taped to to the bed and um, arm in the cast and everything and he couldn't do anything. Uh, Kyle McLaughlin kept feeding him uh, jelly beans over and over in his mouth, trying to get Walter to laugh. Uh, <laughs> so that that's uh, that's a fun little note for our our main character. And um, <clears throat> and then um we got ray wise doing that silent scream that syncs up with the fire alarm which is another nice lynchian touch um apparently ray wise decided to do that silent scream and he is absolutely 100 percent certain that it was before pacino did it in um, godfather part three so it's possible that ray wise started something here i don't know uh but anyway <laughs> <clears throat> That might just be a fish story, but uh, it uh, it was definitely there. Now, as far as the end result for this episode, um, it aired on May 23rd, 1990 to an 18.7 million viewers, which is the best number that uh, Twin Peaks has seen since the Lynch-directed episode two. It aired on a Wednesday instead of a Thursday, and that's part of a uh, sweeps uh, situation. Uh, it was the very last day of the uh, of the May. <clears throat> excuse me. It was the last day of the May sweeps, and the uh, the Gifted and the Damned podcast really goes into this in their first episode, and I highly recommend everybody listen to it for the Cliff's Note version. But. Um, yeah, basically, ABC thought were they they were expecting a final ratings bump because it was a, a season one finale or it was a, a finale episode. So they figured, you know, put it in the sweeps where more people will be watching it. It'll work out great. And um, yeah, what sweeps is is basically the um, the networks like ABC they base the rates they can charge for their advertisement placements. Um, during the entire next business quarter and in this period that they called sweeps you know they they recorded uh, they recorded the ratings for um a certain number of weeks and then um 
you know, changed their prices for their advertising. Um, it happened every February, May, August, and November. So that explains the date change. Um, two days earlier, um, uh, Mark Frost was on Donahue with a bunch of the cast, uh, Donahue being an afternoon talk show. Um, and uh, he he announced the renewal, and then ABC revealed the fall schedule that same day, uh, noting that uh, Twin Peaks would now be on Saturdays. So between between the attitude that Phil Siegel explained earlier that you know like these people are an experiment, they are not people that want to make a network TV show uh, that can last. That I think. Um, you know, well, that plus the middling ratings, you know, if this thing had been as gangbusters as the, uh, as the reputation has it, has it seem, um, you know, it would, it would, it would just be on Thursdays because it would be a ratings hit, but it was never actually a real hit. It was just kind of in that low to middling range. And, um, yeah, so the low confidence in, uh, from the viewers and from the network equals it's going on Saturdays. Um, then also, sat- airing on a Saturday is much better than canceling it and then having Fox Network swoop in and renew it on their network, which was absolutely in the air. I mean, the guy who ran Fox at the time basically says, this should be a Fox show. So, uh, yeah, ABC says, no, we're going to keep this little experiment right where it is and we're going to get the ratings for it. Yeah, so two days before the finale airs, we get a renewal and then two days after the finale airs wild at heart premieres at Cannes festival and it ends up winning the palm d'Or. so you know ratings aside there was buzz in in the whole world about everybody involved with twin peaks especially david lynch all right so that's twin peaks before it aired all the way through its airing and then this is um now we're going to switch over to what David Lynch had to say about it after after the movies had stopped, after everything had stopped, and he's putting his final stamp on everything. This is the Log Lady intro that aired on the Bravo Network for its first syndication run. A drunken man walks in a way that is quite impossible for a sober man to imitate, and vice versa. An evil man has a way, no matter how clever, to the trained eye. Oh, wait. (laughs) Darn it. I am going to read that all over again because I completely stomped over a period. Turned it into a comma. A drunken man walks in a way that is quite impossible for a sober man to imitate and vice versa. An evil man has a way, no matter how clever. To the trained eye, his way will show itself. Am I being too secretive? No. One can never answer questions at the wrong moment. Life, like music, has a rhythm. This particular song will end with three sharp sounds, like deathly drumbeats. So at the beginning, we've got a drunken man. So drugs, I mean, essentially, it's something that can impair your um, awareness. Um, It's... um, it's a, f- a negative frequency sign in in all my work that I've been putting into this. Um, it's it's also associated with evil in a mechanical process. You know, it's like a, a drunken man cannot imitate 
they, you know, cannot be imitated by a sober person. It's like uh, the um, the evil man cannot be imitated by a uh, a positive man. Uh, yeah, it's like it's um, it, it's an association there. Whether you know, drunken is a value judgment along with evil. You know, it's like I don't think it's associated quite like that, but it's more of a metaphor that you know, like when you're on this one frequency somebody from the other frequency can't imitate it and honestly that's kind of like how audrey's been trying to imitate that kind of a kind of a thing this whole time and yet here she is completely out of her depth um but yeah i mean um being on a negative frequency is authentic and it can't be imitated as far as evil men who do we see here? I mean, obviously, the, the I mean, the most obvious one through, you know, a full series context is Leland, because, you know, it's like who. I mean, who knew he was going to be Bob at the time? Nobody. Leland, um, Ray Wise didn't. Uh, Frost did, though, and Lynch did. So, I mean, it's it's coming. And of course, you know, in this episode, Leland breaks out of his grieving father mode and, um, you know, kills somebody. You know, it's it's a thing he does in cold blood, even though he's, you know, doing that shout scream thing. You know, it's like Leland reveals an evil. But it's also about the the more um, physically based characters like Hank. You know, it's like even even normal while Hank is gaslighting her. Uh, you know, with this with this really sweet, perfect life that's going to come. And, you know, it's like, oh, he's going to work for her and it's going to be like it used to be. And yeah, but uh, even Norma can see through all that at the end. You know, she's there. There's that expression on Peggy Lipton's face. You know, it's just like I, you know, it's like I want to believe, but I just. Should I, you know, it's like she can tell who Hank really is. And, you know, Ben, he's getting everything that he wants. You know, he's getting the signatures and everything. And then, you know, he, he goes into the room with the, uh, with the new girl and, um, he's, you know, he's talking about, you know, what dreams are made of, you know, talking Shakespeare, you know, it's like, he wants, he wants everything to be seen as a fantasy, but Audrey knows his voice immediately. And she knows, she knows, um, the trouble more than most people. And, you know, even Leo, he's talking about how, um, you broke my heart. You know, it's like he's talking about like this, you know, the, this grieving, um, boyfriend who's been cheated on yet, you know, here he is killing her basically, or like setting her up to be killed. It's absolutely ridiculous in Leo's case. The, uh, when Margaret says, am I being too secretive? I kind of wonder if that means like, should she be saying who the evil people are? I don't know exactly if that's what it is, but you know, one can never answer the question at the wrong moment. Um, it seems like, you know, answering those questions will happen when the question is ready to be asked, I think is kind of what the vibe is from that. Um, okay. And then Margaret goes into life like music has rhythm. Um, and then this particular song will end with three sharp sounds like deathly drum beats. She's associating the bullets with, with, um, musical elements. And 
I mean, essentially kind of like how Twin Peaks has been associating musical elements with the um, with the dreamy nature of what I call lodge space. And, you know, I mean, there, there's the obvious connections like always music in the air. You know, it's like there's there's always music being associated with the uh, with the metaphysical here. Um, and then, you know, the drum beats used uh, to go with Jacoby's heart attack. You know, it's like the drum uh, and the heart are kind of doing the same sort of dramatic thing. Um, and then, you know, associating the sharp sounds with the bullets, um, you know, the bullets are kind of musical in a way because of, you know the the rhythm of how they go and um it's essentially like a negative frequency <laughs> that it would be happening so like it, it makes sense that the, even though uh, cooper is being physically shot it's still kind of associated with that um supernatural side of twin peaks now before we go into scene by scene breakdowns we're going to listen to some words from our fellow podcasters at Ruminations Radio Network. Hey, this is Charlie, Triple C, from Brevity Box, a new and interesting podcast from the Ruminations Radio Network. If you're a fan of podcasts, we have a lot of great content to offer. Come check out our diverse group of podcasts and hosts at ruminationsradionetwork.com. So now that we're looking at the actual scenes of this episode, um, the the first question that comes to mind is, how does the meta? Uh, oh boy, is how does the metaphysical surface in this episode? I mean, if you, if you look at it point by point, I mean, you remember things like the mill fire and the uh, the. Um, you know the the <laughs> the action music that went with it you know you you remember all the plot elements of the um the all the cliffhangers and it seems like it's more of a by the numbers episode than usual which i mean it is in a lot of ways i mean there's a there's a <laughs> there's an arrest of uh jacques and you know there's like gunplay and yeah so i mean you wouldn't you don't necessarily see it right away cuz i mean it's it's all kind of at the beginning of the episode and your memory kind of forgets it as you go. So, um, the, um, the, the most obvious way that I notice the metaphysical come up is with disguises and they're all over the place in this one. Um, you know, it's not just later in the season with Wyndham Earl doing his, uh, you know, disguise of the week. It's all here already. Um, especially with Maddie dressing up as Laura. Um, and you know, the, the end of last episode with the heavy breathing of the person, the unseen person we're seeing through their eyes, um, you know, watching Maddie as Laura, um, I kind of wonder because she's wearing Laura's stuff, you know, the, uh, don't wear my stuff, Donna, you know, that, that comment in, um, in fire walk with me and the fact that donna gets a little wild when she wears laura's sunglasses etc etc it makes me think that maddie going through laura's closet wearing her clothes for this um is essentially like it the odds are good that she's accidentally sealing her death with this by um you know um being inhabited by whatever it is that Laura was feeling when she was wearing it or um 
just the fact that visually she's becoming Aura, that means that metaphysically she's also sort of becoming Aura. And I mean, it is really clear. Um, you know, the the person who attacks Jacoby is the breathing person or the, the heavy breathing person. Um, and that's made clear later on when he says, you know, smells like scorched engine oil, um, that that was Leland and Bob. And, you know, both of them, because <clears throat> the, the scorched engine oil comes with the smell of the bottle that um, Margaret gives Cooper in episode 29 to get into the lodge. Uh, there's all sorts of associations here. So, yeah, let's assume that um, Leland and Bob are seeing uh, Maddie here. So does that seal her fate? Because, you know, to this point, I mean, sure, she's like spookily connected to Laura, but now she's like visually connected to her, too. So it's more in this physical realm. You know, the, the more the more she dresses like Laura, the more she speaks like Laura in her register. Um, is this basically um, allowing Leland and Bob to kind of loop back and... Um, you know, do what they remember doing when Laura was around, <sighs> which, you know, it doesn't work out well for her in, in episode 14. And I'll be talking about trauma loops uh, a little bit later on, and I probably won't actually reference Leland and uh, Bob at this point or when I'm when I'm talking about it with Nadine. But keep keep them in mind, too, because I think um the the way things work so circularly in Twin Peaks, I think it probably still applies here, even though it's kind of in the margins and um, not absolutely set in stone. But one of the reasons why I do believe that this um, this physical um, wearing of Laura's things is um, enough for Leland and Bob to imprint like that is because Jacoby's starting to do it here. You know, he's seeing Laura there and, um, you know, he, it's later on doc Hayward's talking about how, um, you know, Jacoby was talking about seeing Laura. So, you know, it's like, even though he was, uh, having a heart attack at the time, you know, it's like, he absolutely wasn't sure what was real at this point. And what might make it even more real is the fact that he wasn't wearing his, um, his multicolored sunglasses. Now I know that, you know, you, you, um, you see it on the star picks card and, um, in secret history of twin peaks, it's a, a thing about how, you know, there's a purplish hue over the world and, um, you know, it keeps his brain hemispheres, um, balanced. Uh, so, you know, maybe he's more unbalanced this way, but he's also seeing through physical eyes without without needing like this extra balancing interference. I mean, it's, it's very, you can make an argument that Jacoby's seeing reality more like it is or more like his brain interprets it. So, you know, it's like he, he could be more open to the fact that um, something metaphysical might be seen, but he might also be um, less likely, you know, it just depends on where your belief, uh, falls in and like how the, how the sunglasses either scramble or unscramble his brain. But regardless, when he's attacked is pretty much right after he says that he kind of believes that it's Laura in front of him. 
And, you know, he says it out loud and that's when he gets hit five times. You know, it's like he falls down after the first one. I could understand, like, if they were trying to subdue him, maybe hit him one more time. But they kept hitting him, you know, Bob or Leland. And, um, you know, uh, I'm assuming they're both there. So what were they thinking when they were attacking Jacoby? I mean, you know, it's like, does it uh, thinking about Leland, you know, does that make, um, you know, but does it make him want to kill for Laura? Like, does it make him want to attack Jacoby because, you know, because he remembers Laura dying or anything like that? Um, and, you know, does disinvoking Laura just make Bob want to kill, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's not, you know, there, there's no way to prove it one way or the other. It's just things worth considering as you go. Uh, so yeah, there's, um, there's the future scene in the hospital and that's more what I mean about the killing. You know, it's like, sure. They, they attack Jacoby a little hard, but you know, then they continue it. They bring in, they, you know, they, they break the fire alarm and pretend there's a fire in the hospital so that they can take care of Jacques. And, um, you know, it's like there, there's the, there's the physical fire over at the mill, like burning things for real. And then, you know, there's this, uh, metaphorical one. And, um, it, it kind of reminds me of the, um, the storm that may or may not actually be happening in episode 16 when, um, the 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 one the the German regionalization calls arbitrary law. It's the one where, um, you know, Bob and Leland is caught, and Bob confesses in the sheriff station under the sprinklers. You know, it's like it it's it's the uh, same kind of thing where you know the the building thinks there's a fire, so it's doing its best to put it out, and in here the hospital thinks there's a fire, so it does the alarm, and um. You know, it's like it, it's interesting that it's it's kind of a repeated thing here. Now that the in in episode sixteen, it had nothing to do with um, Bob or Leland setting it off. That was from <laughs> Dick Tremaine's cigarette, uh, so that was just more happenstance. But here, Leland is using it as a cover, almost like a disguise for what he's doing, <clears throat> or at least a cloak. You know. Um, but he goes in there absolutely prepared. He already has the duct tape. He has an idea of what to use it for and how to do it. You know, he does it immediately. He puts the duct tape right around Jacques' uh, wrist. And he, um, you know, he he takes the pillow. It's like he knows exactly what he needs to do. And um, the this, this alarm that he sets off is also metaphorical in the way that he screams. And I know that, you know, it... It apparently wasn't in the script. I mean, Ray Wise claimed that he came up with the silent scream, you know, before before Pacino did it in Godfather Three and all. <laughs> you know, it's 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 um it's it's a good story for him, but um, in this case, it still fits in. It's like what Caleb Deschanel said about how like none of us knew what was um, going to happen in the future, but like some of our decisions accidentally. Um, added to the mystery and the actual answers. Um, this is definitely one that falls into that category, but it's a nice touch that um, Frost synced up the end of the alarm with the end of Leland's scream. And, um, you know, it's like now that the fire is out, now that the building thinks the fire is out, the fire is also out in Leland. And 
I wouldn't be surprised one way or the other that you could make a case that Bob was done at that point, or, you know, at least Leland's urge is gone at that point, because, I mean, there's also a case to be made that that was all Leland and, you know, Bob just kind of like nudged him in the right direction and then set back. Now, the next thing that comes up with disguises is Audrey Horn. Um, and I mean, I, I know in this case, it's more like a uniform than it is a disguise, but you know, she's disguising herself in this uniform of, um, of one eye jacks. And, um, honestly, the, this disguise of hers gets the same kind of attention that Laura would get when she was wearing it. So, um, in a lot of ways, this is Audrey also putting on um, some of Laura's clothes. I mean, it might not be absolutely specific, but she gets the same kind of attention from her father wearing it that Laura did when she wore it. I can I can pretty much guarantee that, even though we've never seen a scene about it. But that's about where the uh, similarity between Maddie and Audrey um, ends, because you know, Maddie, she had backup. She got picked up by uh, James and Donna. And, um, you know, she got to she got to go back to Donna's house and listen to the tape later on. You know, it's um, it's not it's not like Audrey where, you know, she sees Dale Cooper on the security camera when she's picking out a card with Blackie. But, you know, it's like she she may think that, you know, he came for me, you know, it's like, but that's just as unfounded as all the dreams Hank tells Norma later on. And then Nadine tells herself, you know, it's like all these, all these fantasies about, Ooh, what if this, what if that, you know, it's like, Oh, he came for me. He really did read my letter. You know, it's like, she's got all this hope in her about it. And I know that's up for speculation now, but she, um, she, calls cooper at the end of one of the next episodes where she's like you were there you why why didn't you come for me or you know like what i i don't know the exact quote now but you know it's like I, this is in her head at this point now i um i know at this point it doesn't really feel like a disguise so much but there is like a fan uh, there's a fantastical element to this that um you know and um Okay, um, I was on Manners and Madness for this uh, to cover this episode back when they were doing it a couple of years ago, and um, an and absolutely wonderful podcast, by the way. Manners and Madness they cover Jane Austen, but they also cover David Lynch. And um, right now they're in the middle of alternating between Twin Peaks season two episodes and um, and a Jane Austen novel. Um, and, uh, that was kind of the formula of what they were doing when I went on, but, um, yeah, they, they, they are absolutely wonderful people. And, um, Maya Adkins, the, one of the hosts, she, she was basically saying in this episode that, um, Audrey gives off this massive princess in a castle vibes with this whole thing. And, um, you know, even, even down to the fact that like, there's this weird hunchback seamstress character in it, you know, it's a, it gives off a, a uh, princess needing to be rescued vibe. Now this scene starts in a really surreal way anyway, because like you can see Audrey listening to, um, you know, like one of the, one of the guests and one of the lady, you know, one of her coworkers, um, 
you know, having small talk probably before they uh, get into the shenanigans. And, um, you know, Audrey's kind of like, oh, what am I, you know, like, she's like, well, I guess I'm, I, I guess I'm in this. Um, but you pan away from that and you realize that we've been looking at her through a mirror, which is, you know, the same way that, you know, we met Josie in the pilot. And, um, you know, it's like how Hank will talk to Josie later on this episode. And so, and, and, you know, the way we'll see Ben Horn enter Audrey's room later on too. Um, you know, there, there's a certain negative frequency to it. Um, and, uh, it, it's it's surreal enough and then and then we see that this hunchback character is um is stitching the queen of diamonds card onto audrey's um out you know uh the the lingerie that she's wearing um and um okay the queen of diamonds it's a reference to the manchurian candidate um and uh, Frank Sinatra is a sleeper agent and uh, people are wearing uh, playing cards. And then the Queen of Diamonds is what triggers him to, um, you know, to, to begin assassinating someone. So, um, you know, a sleeper agent, dreamy, um, all, all this stuff that um, kind of a dream metaphor. And uh, it's it's just really it, it it's just like this weird scene all the way around. You know, it's like it, um when when somebody sees the card you know it's like um is she supposed to turn into this um the the you know like whatever fantasy they want her to be yeah essentially so i mean the you know while while it's not a one for one with manchurian candidate it's definitely related i should mention that the um that the hunchback seamstress character wasn't in the script and um nobody knew who it was or why that character was there. And, um, turns out it was Leslie Lincoln Gladder who directed one of the earlier episodes. And, um, yeah, she was absolutely pleased. She, she was tickled that no one recognized her. Cause you know, they, they made like this, this hairy mole on her chin and like all, you know, she had the hunch, um, all this stuff that, um, you know, like it, it it's, it's like screwball comedy, but it's also very surreal. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just interesting. And then like, you know, the, and then she like, she scuttles away into a panel in the walls and, uh, you know, it's like, she was never there. Yeah. You know, it's like almost like a, um, you know, a mouse in the walls or something. You know, it's a, it, it, there's, um, a certain amount of, uh, in between spaces that she kind of felt like she was part of anyway, and um you know it's like the the and the wall hatch is actually a lot like the one that audrey uses at the great northern so i'm wondering you know was it the same builders as the great northern um you know it's it's definitely the same mentality because um yeah ben ben horn there's there's always something um under the surface even in his buildings but the fact that they need a seamstress for the cards and the fact that, you know, it's a hunchback and like, you know, um, <laughs> sculling away <laughs> as if like, you know, nobody else even knows she's there. Like there, there's so many surreal elements. It's, it's kind of dreamy in the first place. And then the next time Audrey, um, 
hears anybody. It's Ben Horn walking into the room, you know, quoting, quoting Shakespeare, you know, close your eyes. This is such stuff as dreams are made of. And, you know, it's like, no kidding. Uh, the whole thing is just really surreal in that way that, you know, I, I would call it a negative frequency because it's all, it's all about secrets and, you know, like these, um, these fantasies of dreams that keep everything secret, that would be a negative, uh, frequency pretty easily. Um, but even with all this, um, you know, even wearing the same clothes that Laura was just wearing, you know, it's like she, I don't think she ever wanted to actually become Laura, but she's doing it by accident almost like, I mean, well, I mean, sort of by plan because she wants to know what Laura was doing to get her killed. But, you know, subconsciously, I really do think that she wanted the attention from her dad and everybody, honestly, um, to feel everybody feeling that she is that special. You know, so she wants to have that attention. Um, it just it just so happens that she didn't realize that that kind of attention was actually some other kind of attention. And she's absolutely getting what was really the attention um, her dad would give Laura. And, you know, that it's it's not acceptable at all. And, um, you know, it's at this point at the end of this episode or her last scene of this episode where she finally realizes the, uh, the disconnect between what she always imagined, um, Laura was, you know, getting from people and, um, what was really happening. Now, Ben Horn isn't the only one who's, um, trying to paint fantasies, um, in this episode. I mean, Hank Jennings is definitely doing the same exact thing with Norma. Um, you know, he, he talks about this life that he imagined when he was inside, um, you know, when he, when he was in, uh, when he was in prison, um, you know, he's telling her all this golly gee shucks kind of, kind of stuff about, you know, like, oh, how he just imagined her bed and this and that. And, um, I mean, he, he's essentially painting a scene and, um, you know, he's almost like casting a spell on Norma. You know, he convinces her, for, you know, first he convinces her through uh, reverse psychology to listen to him in the first place. And, you know, she says, no, 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 tell me, you know, like whatever, whatever it was that he said that, you know, oh, she didn't want to hear this. And then, you know, it's like, no, no, tell me. So like she, um, she gave him permission to tell this little story. And, um, you know, then, then, you know, he, he gets a certain point through and she says, you know, can't blame you for dreaming. And there's the word dream again, popping up. Um, so, you know, we're, we're in fantasy land here with Hank. Um, and, um, honestly, the, the stuff that she's hearing from him, it's a lot like what Nadine said she was imagining for, um, for her and Ed last episode, you know, the, there's this whole new life that's being built. Um, that Hank is coming up with possibly on the fly. Um, but you know, um, he, um, his goal here, um, he, he ends, he ends his big stump speech with, you know, give me time, Norma, I'll make you proud of me yet. And then he leans in for this really creepy kiss and, um, she actually accepts it. Um, so essentially, you know, we get, I mean, you know, she, she has a question on her face at the end of that scene, you know, it's like, it's, 
is he serious? You know, like she's she's completely gaslit by this guy. And um, you know, essentially where where we're at with um with the ladies associated with Ed, both Nadine and Norma are imagining a life that isn't going to happen and this life that isn't going to happen is told to them by people unable to deliver the dream as a reality. Now there's there's meta there's a metaphysical bent to this um to this episode in ways that don't involve disguises. It's more about like when truth surfaces. Um you know, like when when um when Shelley understands that Leo's attacking her, I mean she's she's basically on this um fear frequency for for all um intents and purposes you know like she she really lives in a horror movie in episode 21 when she and bobby are attacked by the um just out of a coma leo um then you know it 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 has all the horror movie tropes but here there's a lot of that kind of vibe too um you know it's like she's she's in this um absolutely exposed house alone and um christian for manners and madness you know when uh, when I was there, he he pointed out that, you know, Shelly is so ill-equipped to handle domestic violence. Uh, you know, like she didn't go to anybody else's houses. She didn't, um, you know, find a safe place. She went back to where she came from, almost like you would in a horror movie. You know, it's like you don't uh, you don't leave the house. You uh, you run into it and like you go upstairs or something, you know, like uh, she's um, she's got absolutely nowhere to go. And it like physically manifests in how she handles herself and what ends up happening. She, um, you know, she's hung up by handcuffs or whatever um, in in a mill that's set to burn. And Nadine similarly uh, presented with a bunch of reality here. Um, you know, I mean, she she gets turned down by the patent office and um, her fantasy life isn't going to be able to happen. And that's where she was last episode watching Invitation of Love. And then the next the you know, pretty much the only time we see her in this episode, she's wearing this like pink child dress almost. Um, and, um, you know, like she's she's uh, setting everything up in like this weird ceremonial way to attempt suicide and she um you know she writes a letter and she's putting it in the envelope right away and um you know it's like right before this scene um i mean the the transition is nadia's blanket being laid down but um the the scene right before it is shelly uh being berated by leo you know he's he's telling her um, you know, think about what you've done to me. You've got an hour to do it. And <laughs> because that's what she should be thinking about in her last hour is how she wronged him. But, um, she like Nadine in this case, like that's exactly what she's been doing is going through how her life has gone wrong or like how, how it just hasn't worked for her or anything. And like, you know, she, she caps it off with goodbye. Um, <clears throat> you know she's seeing what her life is versus what she dreamed and um you know it's like the, this camera is circling around her so like there there's this trauma loop that she's going through and um you know she's um both her eyes work because when when the camera comes around to her uh from the left there's actually a tear go coming down from underneath her eye patch and um you know, while she's in this pain, 
her both of her eyes work, or at least the tear ducts work. And um, you know, from the Log Lady intro a couple episodes ago, um, tear ducts are there to basically um do what the body needs to handle while the sadness is still here. And I know I said trauma loops um here, and um it's very much related to um uh one of one of our 25YL writers, Emily Marinelli. She wrote a um she wrote this really solid article uh called Run Silent, Run Drapes, What Nadine's Story Teaches Us About Trauma Loops, Trauma Healing and Trauma Recovery. And um <clears throat> Emily is a uh, is a genuine psychotherapist and uh she was looking at how the you know what the drapes represent you know like how she always wants these silent drape runners and um she asks you know what do the drapes represent she says when we experience a trauma we can get caught in a loop when reality is overwhelming loud intense and scary for Nadine this is out the outside world of twin peaks the nervous system collapses into a singular emotional neuropathway looping around and around the traumatic memory, taking us further and further from the rational side of the brain that knows we are safe and not actually threatened in the moment. She says later, Creating a silent drape runner is an attempt to find her way out of the trauma loop she resides in. When she discovers that she loses the drape runner patent, she realizes there is actually no way out of her trauma, and she may have felt, one, rejection on top of feeling already so much rejection in the outside world, two, death of a dream, a promise of a new life for her and Ed, three, continued anxiety and overwhelm in her life and her world, four, strain at the impossibility of returning to the external world, and five, hopelessness, that things won't change and her trauma will just continue. And, um, you know, right there, you can kind of see how Emily and I line up on a lot of things with Nadine, although um, although I will say it's, it's fairly clear that um, Emily's a little more studied about this in a, uh, in a proper therapy kind of way. Um, you know, I'm I'm more like reverse engineering it through Twin Peaks and um, the uh, what what will eventually happen in season three with the golden shovels that Nadine is really into. And um, I kind of think that this recognizing of trauma here, um, while it is a loop sort of situation, eventually like this, this ends up like beginning one of the golden uh, one of the golden coats on her metaphorical shovel, which um you know, Frost basically says in Final Dossier that uh, Jacoby's actively trying to do intrapersonal alchemy with this. Um, but at this point with Nadine's story, and I'll, I'll go into that a lot more when she's doing her high school delusion. Um, and I'll be talking more about Emily's article at that point, too, because it really it really helps solidify what I've been thinking about Nadine. Um, <clears throat> but here. Um, it reminds me of another time when um when we have somebody like breaking down and and figuring out that their negative um their negative thought process isn't working is with Anthony Sinclair in um in um oh my gosh uh, <laughs> I'll say I'll say part 13 but it's it's around there um 
where he's caught uh, by Bushnell Mullins and and Cooper Dougie. Um, and he basically says, you know, it's like, I, I've done all these terrible things and I either want to die or change. And um, Nadine isn't able to change right now. So the first thing, and, and, you know, it's in the same order. It's not fix your hearts or die. It's die or change. And change is like something that people in the negative point of view can't actually come up with. Um, you know, they, they can't quite figure out that the change is fixing your heart. You know, they just know there has to be something else. But part of them kind of has to die first. And that goes into more of an alchemical kind of point of view, too. And um, Gazella Fleischer over at, um, well, I mean, she she wrote for 25YL as well. Um, and this came out like sometime right around part eight. Um, she wrote this thing called Twin Peaks and Alchemy. And it really matches up well with, um, you know, the... Um, well, she, she's got seven steps, and I'm not going to read all of them, but there's uh, seven steps in the standard alchemical process of metaphorically turn, turning one's inner lesser metal into gold. So um, step one is calcination. The ego must be destructed and detachment of material possessions. It's humbling surrender of the, of the hubris. Or the hybris, which is essentially hubris, uh, to my understanding. Um, step two is disillusion. It's letting go of control, prejudice, and personal hangups, further breaking down of the artificial structures of the psyche. And step three is separation, which is rediscovering the essence. Uh, it's deciding what matter to discard and what matter to reintegrate into a new, more refined personality. It's reclaiming of dreams and visions and letting go of the self-inflicted restraints. So where I would put Nadine at this point is somewhere around step two. You know, it's like she's um, she has to destroy the parts of herself that make her believe that death is the answer here. So, I mean, honestly, it's probably step one where she's at here. And, um, you know, step three is like a part of what she does um, during her high school stint. But, um, yeah, like, um, even though she's stuck in this really bad spot here, and it's kind of the beginning of her alchemical transformation that ends up, uh, you know, finally coming to a conclusion in, um, in part 15 of season three. Um, you know, it's like, while, while she's here, because she's in that point of view, yet also in reality at the same time, she's, you know, she's actually killing herself. And the only thing that saves her is when Ed comes in and, you know, he's like, don't you do this. Stay with me, Nadine. And he calls for help which is a huge, huge part of, of, um, of the golden shovel, uh, trauma cycle, you know, breaking the trauma cycle, you know, it's like, you have to, you have to be able to call for help and ask for it. And while she's not asking for it now, that's probably why she wakes up in a complete delusion because she's not ready to ask for help, but she's kind of getting it anyway. Now mentioning that, um, that there's a, a a mental space that Nadine was in and a physical space at the same time. Um, 
it makes me think about how recordings work in Twin Peaks and um, how do recordings and I mean, honestly, phone calls, too, because it's uh, still, you know, like a, um, an electronic recording or like a, a recording <laughs> of something uh, transmitted across space. Um, that's essentially uh, how phones seem to be used in this uh, in this place. Um, how do they work differently in Twin Peaks than anywhere else? Well, um, there's a there's a weird um, continuity error. Uh, essentially, it's an error. Uh, it's a repurposing of that Laura tape that was uh, from uh, from the end of episode one when Jacoby's listening to it. Um, it's a different recording of the same words uh, in this version. Um, so when Jacoby listened to it in episode one, Laura was crying. You know, she was feeling the pain and she was feeling scared. Um, and then here, when uh, when Donna, James, and Maddie are listening to it over at Donna's house, um, this Laura is much more calm. You know, she's kind of collected. Feels like it, it feels less like I know I'm going to die, and more just um, you know, there, there's this. Um, there's almost like this barrier she's putting over herself at this point again, you know, it's like, she's not, um, full on experiencing what she's talking about. Like she did in episode one. Um, I mean, it's probably a production situation because I bet any money that when she were, when Cheryl Lee recorded that in episode one, they probably only wrote as many lines as she recorded and then stopped. Whereas here you needed to hear the rest of the recording. So for continuity purposes, you know, it's like, it's, it's almost impossible to get her back in that same state of mind. And also the mood should feel a little bit differently at this point too, um, for the emotional delivery. But, um, you know, one plus one equals, let's just re-record the whole thing. So, I mean, from a production standpoint, I kind of get why they use two different tapes, but, um, I don't think the, um, the, the writers and the staff had any instinct that, um, or, or any idea, like it, it's like all the crime noir catches, you know, like everybody noticing all the name references and everything. Like, I don't think they were expecting the regular viewers to be um, noticing that the recording of the tape was different because, you know, I mean, the TV viewing wasn't quite so, um, you know, fine tooth comey about it uh, back then. <clears throat> but um, the an, another podcast uh, back in 2015, uh, Twin Peaks Peaks was uh, going through the series uh, recap style. And, um, one of their hosts, Ashley, asked their other host, Matt, um, to consider this inconsistency within the story, which is, you know, right up my alley. I remember this uh, vividly. Um, so <laughs> you get Ashley saying stuff like, you know, in Timeline 2, when Laura wasn't crying, you know, when she recorded this, you know, it's like, you know, they, they understand that it's it's a production error more than anything. But like, what could it mean? to how we're meant to interpret this. You know, this is what Ashley's asking. And, um, you know, Matt brought up this interesting thought that Laura's consistently being retconned every time we learn something about her. And um, 
you know, they, they, um, they kind of come down on, because season three was nowhere near coming out at this point with, um, you know, even hints of multiple timelines and they weren't taking it that way. You know, they, they were basically saying that, um, the difference in the recordings denotes an unreliable narrator in Twin Peaks. And, um, you know, like the whole show is unreliable in a lot of ways, which ends up actually fitting in really nicely with this whole multiple timeline, multiple frequency thing that I'm uh, focusing on when I'm doing this podcast. Um, you know, it could be Twin Peaks um, and especially, you know, recordings therein that are interpreted by the listener. And that's what we get. Um so, I mean, this loses uh, the traction that the real Donna is uh, Lara Flynn Boyle because she's the one in the video that was recorded. I mean, you know, it's like maybe that could be a little screwy in this way, too, where the video is also sort of unreliable. But um, I don't know. The um, it It loses it loses something if you get too literal with this. Because it's not intentional by the staff. You know, it's like Frost wasn't intending to create two timelines. You know, it's like, and not at this point. You know, it's like he was just making a show and he wanted to further the audio from, from you know, the, the, he wanted to get emotional beats out of a audio tape so that um, James and Donna and Maddie could all react to it. You know, it's like he... You can only you can only do too much of it, but um, it really does end up it, it it it's easy to land where Ashley uh, and uh, and Matt were, where you know it it really emphasizes that Twin Peaks is full of unreliable narrator, and kind of my thesis statement on this whole thing where um, what we see is in part you know, like what the, um, what the POV character is experiencing, you know, whether it's like physically there or not, you know, it's, it's real in Twin Peaks because someone is feeling it and they are on a certain frequency to be able to, to have it like manifested physically somehow in this show. But let's look at what's actually in this recording, too. I mean, we got to <laughs> we got to actually talk about it. You know, it's like th this is where she, uh, where Laura is saying, you know, James is sweet, but he's so dumb. And right now I can only take so much sweet. Um, you know, then then she brings up the mystery man. And, you know, it's like if you if you find out who he is, you'll be history, man, all that stuff. Um, you know, uh, what the plot detail is that, you know, it's a red Corvette. And, um, you know, he can light her F-I-R-E. So um, it's essentially connecting Leo to her romantically in a way, or, you know, um, um, sexually at least. Um, you know, she she likes the danger. And, um, you know, like we, we also see later on with the bite the bullet thing that Leo says. So, you know, it's like she we see both sides of this, you know, both like her kind of being into it and then um, the end result being kind of scary and more than she was expecting or wanting, um, you know, kind of like what Audrey's dealing with right now, honestly. Um, you know, then then we get 
and then this tape gives a reminder at the very end of her actual age. You know, it's like, uh oh, here comes mom with milk and cookies. You know, she's still a kid. Uh, I don't know. Um, Larfun Boyle doing um, doing that. You know that 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 dad. You know that 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 like you know she's heartbroken and it's really hard for her to come out of it. And she you know um, answers her dad when he calls her out of this experience that she's in the middle of. That was a ah so such good acting overall in this whole thing. And, um, you know, it's like they're, they're, they're hearing her describe the man who could have killed her. And yeah, I mean that, that would shake people who are trying to figure out who, who murdered her. And I mean, I know that's, that's their little, um, Nancy Drew and the Hardy boys thing that they're doing right now. Um, you know, the junior detectives thing, but, um, you know, to be presented with it, so rawly you know even if it's uh a less fearful uh recording you know it's still there and it's still super creepy and um you know J- james is in it too you know he he has this um he has the ability to move on from this at this point like uh any romantic entanglements that he might still have with laura you know he he says you know i'm glad i heard her say that i it I could have gone my whole life and then he trails off, you know, um, he's glad to know what Laura actually felt about him. <clears throat> and, um, uh, you know, he's in such a good place about this or he's, he's in a, a positive feeling about that part for his own life that, you know, he's like, Oh, Jacoby didn't kill her. He's trying to help her, you know, because he just got helped by this recording. Um, but, you know, Donna's a little bit more level-headed about this, you know, then, then how do you get the necklace? So, you know, the suspicion's still there for the plot. But going back to Jacoby, that isn't the only kind of sound recording that we're dealing with in this episode by a long shot. Um, the, the, very, the, the episode opens by, you know, looking at a palm tree and it's like, you know, like, you're not quite sure, you know, it's like, are we actually, are, are we watching an episode of Twin Peaks or not? Because, you know, you hear the shore and everything, you know, but then we find out it's a recording, um, you know, it, it, just like his glassing, you know, glasses through sound, he's like presenting this other place that he can go to. It's like a meditation kind of thing, you know, it's like, um make the sound frequencies happen so that you can, um, you can kind of be in a level place. You know, it's probably more with balance. Um, but it's also about, you know, control the, control the environment around you and you can kind of control your experience of that environment. And it, it goes along with, you know, why he feeds into the whole delusions of Nadine and, um, Oh my gosh. Uh, Ben Horn, you know, his civil war thing, you know, it's like Jacoby's all about indulging these kind of experiences, which really fits in with how he does his office up. And, um, it's, it's interesting because like, even when those sounds go away, it's still playing. It's just that James lowered the volume on all four bands of, uh, the audio equipment. So it's still there even while, um, James and Donna are, um, not listening to it actively. Now phones figure into this too, because they're transmitting an audio signal across, across an electric wire, um, you know, over distance, you know, we got, we got Hank calling Catherine, uh, telling her a lie to get her to go to the mill. Um, then, um, you know, he's calling Ben and, um, 
and then he's calling Ben, and you know he gets word to you know basically um, kill Leo, you know, like Black Flag the firebug, and you know Black Flag is a pesticide, um, firebug. Um, it's a it's a reference that at the time you would totally get, um, you know, exterminate the bug that lit the fire. And, um, yeah, that's just something Hank was doing in this episode, but then Bobby calls the sheriff's station and he's impersonating Leo over it. So, you know, you, you take the visual, um, you, you take the visual band out of it and you can impersonate anybody. And, um, in, in a way this makes Bobby, like embodying the thing that he fears because, you know, he's not, he's not, um, you know, it, it, in episode two, you know, he's absolutely terrified of Leo finding out about him and Shelly. And, you know, here in this episode, it absolutely happens. And, you know, Bobby tries to get out of it once he goes in and, you know, it's like, Hey, Shelly, uh, uh, you know, he's trying to get, he's trying to call out to Shelly and then he's like, Oh, Leo, I was looking for you. And, you know, it's like he, um, he's ending up getting attacked by Leo and Leo's smiling in this really creepy way that like, we, we haven't seen a smile like that, um, since Dale Cooper was like, you know, trying to get a letter out from under Laura's fingernail in the pilot. You know, it's like a smile like that is very creepy. And um, it almost, it, it's almost like he's, um, he's enjoying intimidating Bobby, but also is he really enjoying his work? You know, is, is like, <laughs> like the stoicism that, you know, uh, uh, Cooper's following his intuition and becoming his purpose. You know, it's like, is Leo actually becoming his purpose here? Like, is he, uh, is he just that kind of guy who likes to, you know, be be that kind of trouble? <sighs> anyway, I don't know. I mean, he he scared the hell out of me. Like back, <laughs> this this is one of those few memories that I do have of that summer when I was rewatching or when when they were re-airing season one and I was watching it, getting ready for season two. And I remember those intros. Um, like they would show like these little mini trailers, like at the beginning and the end of commercial breaks of like things that you're going to see in Twin Peaks. And I kept remembering Bobby walking past and that door swinging open and there's Leo. So like Leo is totally embodying fear that um, scared the hell out of 12 year old me. So maybe it is his purpose, though, though, during that whole thing, you know, so he's, um, you know, like when when he's. um when Leo is basically abducting Shelly, she's like, you made me do this. And, um, you know, you broke my heart. Yeah. <laughs> All these things. Yeah. It's like, he's blaming Shelly for his experiences and what he's doing. And then, you know, then he's blaming Bobby when he's, you know, got the ax to him, you know, it's like you killed her. Um, you know, it's, it's all grievances in zero taking responsibility for his own actions. Um, so, I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, it's like, he's not a self. He's like, he, he's like an arm and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be using this, trying to figure out like what, what the little man from another place meant by when he said, I'm the arm, you know, it's like, is it literal or is it a function? And, um, yeah, so Leo's a function here. Um, kind of like Hank, but lesser. And, you know, we get that by their own thing. You know, it's like when, when Hank said earlier that, you know, you, I asked you to mind the store, not to start a franchise or whatever he said. Um, so, 
yeah it's kind of funny that um the um the junior arm <laughs> gets shot by the main one uh right then through the window and um yeah so hank again you know executing a plan for ben horn and talking again about hank carrying out ben horn's plan um the the last major way to look at this episode is to find out you know to look into what's surfacing when plans are realized cuz pretty much everywhere it's like what i said about audrey you know it's like your your intention for what you're trying to get out of what you're doing does not get the like results that they're supposed to in pretty much any way um you know unless you're I mean, you know, even Ben Horn, you know, it's like everything's going like clockwork for him, but then, you know, he's going to celebrate with his daughter, you know, it's like, that is not where he thought he was going to end up. Um, you know, not that he understands that, but yeah, I said a lot that, um, most of these plans that, um, all, all these, all these, uh, paths the characters were taking last episode, they were pretty much all cutting corners and um you know going through a dangerous path to get to the to the end result as quickly as possible um and and we're seeing a lot of these results here and you know i mean obviously they all end in cliffhangers but you know they get further along to the point where you know it's like we we knew that they were in danger before but now we kind of see like exactly what kind of danger they're in. And then it was left to our imaginations, how they either get out of the danger or not with all the cliffhangers. Um, but so right now, um, James and Donna broke into Jacoby's office. What do they get? They get the tape and the half heart necklace. Um, except that when James submits the evidence that, they get um he's essentially arrested due to um bobby's shenanigans framing him with the um with the coke in the gas tank uh <clears throat> a hasty plan that was bank shotted from that is jacoby's um you know he he wants to investigate the um the weird laura tape himself you know it's like instead of submitting it to the police to look into it he needs to do it himself and um you know what what ends up happening to him he gets heart attacked um you know and then he <laughs> thinks he sees a dead girl uh, and he ends up in a mini coma from it you know it's like it's not a very long coma and why not a full coma because it's not actually a metaphysical situation that he came across you know it, it sure looks like it on paper and um you know he's um he's unresponsive from it kind of like how ronette um couldn't really communicate after her experiences but um this was all man-made you know i mean it was all or it was all human made um by kids <laughs> putting it all together so you know there he, he um jacoby didn't have his glasses you know it's like maybe it, it was all worldly enough that all he did was get knocked out for half an episode Lucy's plan was wait for Andy to um to reveal himself to be this, you know, manly man or whatever, you know, somebody who um she could trust to help take care of a kid. And um you know, it's like he learns how to shoot. 
um, you know, he becomes the hero here by saving Harry and she likes all this stuff. So then she reveals to him that he, uh, that she's pregnant, but, um, then he goes away without saying a word. And, you know, it's like, we think it's because, you know, he's not responding well to the pregnancy thing, but, um, in the future we're going to learn because, you know, he didn't tell her about his sperms and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, he probably didn't tell her right then about that because of how secretive she's been about this whole thing. So, you know, she's been keeping the secret all season and she kind of gets rewarded for it by more misunderstanding. But then there's Hank. He shows up halfway through this episode and then he's everywhere. He's in the diner. He's, um, you know, he's taking care of Catherine. He's taking care of Josie. He's taking care of Leo. You know, he's, he, he, um, he's pretty much everywhere he could be. Um, and, um, you know, he, he is the arm of Ben Horn and, um, you know, he, he's, he's enacting Ben's other, I mean, he, he's enacting Ben's plans completely. He gets Catherine in the mill. He shoots Leo. Um, you know, it's like, sure, Ben's, Ben's the one who's smiling that his plans all coming together, but Hank's the one doing all the work. And, um, you know, he's got his own side business too, this whole time, you know, he's, he, um, he gets a kiss from Norma and, um, you know, ensures that he's got a little bit more security that way, uh, getting in a little bit better with her. He's, um, he's getting in better with Ben, uh, by doing all this business. You know, he's, he's proving himself a, a good worker there too. Um, and then, um, uh, with Josie, he gets in, he gets in more business with her too, because, um, you know, he, he proves to her that, you know, even though they had an agreement, even though she paid him all this money, um, you know, once, once you're in business, you're always in business. And, you know, he's kind of gaslighting her into, um, believing that she can't get out from under his thumb. And, uh, you know, literally they, you know, do the blood brothers thing, um, <laughs> with, with their thumbs. Uh, so yeah, he, um, he gives this great monologue, by the way, Mark Frost, um, you know, what is the market value of, uh, 18 months? I mean, that's, that's some, that's some stellar work right there. And, um, it kind of, it kind of shows that like a successful life in the dark paths of Twin Peaks, it's, it's all financially lucrative or financially focused. And that makes me think of part 13 in season three, for sure, where, um, where Mr. C, um, basically, um, he just wants a little bit of information from Renzo ends up getting over, getting the whole operation. And, um, there's the, the weird little accounting guy, um, who keeps asking him, you know, it's like, you want any money or you need any money? And, um, you know, it's, it's all, it's all so financially focused. Um, you know, the goal isn't to be human. It's a, it's to acquire wealth and wealth equals power and all that. Um, it, it's just all so related. And, um, yeah, the negative frequency always values money first. And, um, and Josie's also valuing the money here. You know, it's like, she, uh, she's like, we have the agreement. Um, and, um, she, she valued money. Like she, she put a price on Andrew's life. You know, she, she actively tried to kill her husband and, um, you know, she's actively trying to 
save herself here by giving Hank the money. Um, so she's she's trapped in this because Hank still knows um, what was done and for how much. You know, it's like he's he's dangerous, and um, you know it's signed and sealed <laughs> as uh, signed, sealed, delivered. That's what Hank actually says to her about about you know the money that he got from her and um he decides uh, he decides to tell her you know it's like you want a lot for your money and then he says and i want a lot for my time so you know time and money time is money in a negative frequency and because it's so transactional it ends up becoming you know darth vader and lando you know pray i don't alter the deal further uh You know, it's like it's um, it reminds me of what Duncan Todd tells Roger in um, I I think it's part two of season three. You know, like, uh, you know, don't don't if you have a choice to get into business with with these people, don't do it, Uh, because once you're in, you can't you can't get out of it. And um, that matches the the proverb that Hank uh, tells Josie that he read in prison. You know, once you're in business with somebody, you're in business for life. And then he says, like a marriage, which reframes how he's talking to Norma. On Catherine's side of things, she kind of understands that there's plans against her in this one. And, um, you know, she didn't sign on the line last episode for that life insurance policy. You know, she's trying to slow down and think her way through how to get out of this. And, you know, she's coming up with a plan. You know, she, how she does it is by actually being authentic here. You know, she asks Pete for help, which is, um, you know, something that you do when you're in a, in a positive frequency actually and it ends up working out for her because she finds her way out of the mill um you know even though it comes from a point of view of like you know this is also a plan that she started she's in the middle of it you know it's like she she started the plan with ben and she's end up getting burned by it personally and almost physically um how she gets how she tries to get out of this. She actually appeals to the memory, you know, think memory of, uh, <laughs> how important that is to twin peaks of, um, of Pete and Catherine when they were younger and way more into each other. Um, you know, um, as she puts it, when there was some caring between us, um, you know, so she wants Pete to acknowledge the old feelings and then, and then I'm quoting her, I'm asking you to feel that now. So like she's desperate, but she knows how to get help from Pete and it's to be authentic and to be truthful. Um, you know, she knows that she needs help and she's smart enough to ask for it. And um, I honestly think that through this, through this episode, she's actually kind of tuned to that too. You know, she, she remembers how it used to be between them and um you know between asking for help and then kind of reminding yourself of that i think that put her in a point of view 
where she was willing to actually rescue Shelly too, instead of just, um, you know, letting her burn because that would be the easiest thing to do on her way out. You know, she actually has compassion for another human being, even though, you know, um, in the pilot, she goes up to that one employee and it's like, what's your name? You're fired. You know, it's like she, she had zero compassion then, but now she's starting to, and that ends up benefiting her again, um, when she got Pete to feel that way, because, you know, he goes in there after her into the fire, you know, I, she's still my wife in that perfect Jack Nance delivery. Now, the guy who had the most plans in this whole episode was, um, was Agent Cooper. <clears throat> you know, the, um, the last episode, you know, sure. He, um, he goes to one eye Jacks illegally, but, um, in this episode, he gets that confession from shock that he wanted. You know, I mean, sure. He pretends to be a friend of Leo's and, um, you know, then he says, I'm the bank, which again, associates the money, you know, do you need any money? And it's, I'm the bank. I'm going to give you the money. Um, so that's how he gets answers. And, you know, Jacques just completely trusted. It's like, Oh yeah, money. Okay. I can, I can work with that. Um, you know, it's it's easy for Jacques to believe the lie that way. And, um, you know, Cooper says, we're in sync now, which goes along with my um, my idea about frequencies being, um, you know, um, the way to follow the uh, the energy and the point of view and like what what happens in Twin Peaks. Uh, it um, you know, it's like he gets he gets Jacques on the frequency of this lie the same way that Hank gets Norma on the frequency of a lie to get a kiss from her and a little more security. And Jacques feels more security from Cooper. And, um, so he gets the, he gets half of the money now and half of the money promised later. So he's kind of in between, um, doing a middleman job of, uh, getting something to this water supply plant on in, in twin peaks proper. Um, so, you know, Cooper's plan is working out so far. He's getting he, he's getting his prime suspect to a place where he could be arrested. And um, then he asks for information on the chip. You know, it's like, how'd that, how'd that chip get the bite? Uh, so we learn about Leo and how it, how terrible it was. You know, it's like, um, uh, Leo was, uh, what, what, giving it to her or whatever Jacques said. Um, and so, so Laura is tied up. Leo is just, um, in it for himself and he's laughing about the pain that Laura's got with Waldo, the bird pecking at her. I mean, that's, uh, I don't know. And, and, um, pain is funny to Jacques. And I don't know if it's because he thinks that, you know, oh, the bank's going to think this is a great thing. But, um, yeah, it's it's really disappointing because in the diary, he's more of a protector to Laura and Ronette. And, um, you know, maybe maybe that's just the way Laura thought of him because he actually was the closest thing to protection that she had. But in this case, he did nothing to get the bird off of Laura. And, um, as Cooper says, he's too stupid to lie. So I think this is the real Jacques. 
Now, after Cooper seals the deal to get Jacques to do the job, to get him in place to be arrested, um, you know, Cooper says, uh, got a hawk, we got a trout on the line. And there's a whole bunch of fish metaphors. And it makes me kind of think about catching the big fish, you know, where um, where Lynch talks about catching fish in in the um, in the collective unconscious or the uh, the, the unified field. Um, you know, it's like the ideas are there. You just have to catch them. Um, so, like, I kind of wonder if, like, this is a real world version of that. Like, the, I, was Frost actually, like, was Lynch using those metaphors back then when he and Frost were riding together? I would say, yeah. So, I think this is kind of a nod to this being like the physical version of the metaphorical stuff that happens in Twin Peaks. But yeah, this is like a hastily thrown together plan and the the arrest is nearly botched. The only reason why it worked out, um, you know, I mean, we, we get Harry saying, you know, you're under arrest for the attempted murder of Ronette Pulaski. You know, holy crap, they actually remember Ronette and the murder of Laura Palmer. Um, and um, the only reason why that didn't get botched is because Andy was there. And, you know, Andy is the guy who's like, as straight arrow as you get you know he's he's like um honestly it's kind of like how dougie was with the ike the spike attack in las vegas uh where um you know it's like dougie just you know repeats a word a word every once in a while and you know that's all you get out of him but he sprung to action when he and Janie e were in danger of like the spike you know it's like he totally um <laughs> what would uh he sprung like a cobra or had reflexes like a cobra or whatever that one comedian said on the uh on the um on the fake newscast uh <clears throat> you know it's like is andy that kind of character where he can spring to action when absolutely necessary you know, it's like he he knew exactly what to say too. You know, are you all right? You better call an ambulance. It's just like in part fourteen when he brought NATO home, and she's like, she needs help, and she's in a lot of danger. A lot of people want to hurt her. You know, it's like he just he knows what to do when people are in danger. But yeah, this scene ends up bringing Jacques to the hospital, and um, you know, he gives kind of a confession, more of a confession to Harry and Cooper now that he knows who Cooper is. Um, you know, they find out that it was Laura's idea to make Flesh World ads. And um, he and Leo were fighting because Leo hit him with a bottle and he didn't know why. And uh, Leo was laughing and uh, the Leo shirt with Jacques blood. That's how that happened. Um and then Jacques passed out outside, and then next thing he knew, uh, Leo and the girls were gone, and he had to walk 15 miles home uh, on foot. <clears throat> so he'll actually help. Um, you know, he he will test. He he'll be able to testify against Leo once they catch Leo. So again, the plan is coming together. Um, and you know, this is when you find out, or when they learn that. Um, through Doc Hayward that Jacoby saw Laura. Um, there, are, there are all these things that are starting to come together. And um, it works out nice. And it seems like it's all coming together, except that, um, you know, um, Lucy points uh, the guys to, to Leo being found at Easter Park because that was the sound that was happening when Leo called. Except, 
you know, here, here's another problem. She's giving uh, proper evidence about Bobby, who is impersonating Leo. Like, all these plans are coming together, but they're coming together a little bit wrong. And, you know, unbeknownst to Cooper, we have the plan falling apart, like, almost immediately. You know, Leland's killing Jacques. Uh, Hank is shooting Leo. There's all these problems. And, um, and at the time... Cooper's going back to um, going back to the Great Northern. He's talking to Diane, and you know, it's it's four thirty seven in the morning. Um, it's looking up to be a successful investigation, and then he says this line: 24 hour room service must be one of the premier achievements of modern civilization." And um, it kind of rings funny because, like, he's celebrating all these things that are going wrong as he speaks, literally, and. Um, you know, it's like he's not aware of the mill burning or anything like that. And, um, you know, he's talking about how something that happens for 24 hours straight is an amazing achievement. Whereas all it's really doing is talking about how it's not taking into account that rest should be a thing. You know, it's like there's no balance if you're not getting enough rest. And this is where Cooper really is starting to be on the wrong page with everything. You know, it's like he he's just a little bit off and he picks up he picks up uh, Audrey's uh, note, you know, my special agent. And, you know, then he's like he's he's opening the envelope and getting ready to read it, except the phone rings. So then he picks that up and he's like, um, you know, like, can this can wait until morning? Very much in the same way that he um, he told Harry at the end of episode two after the dream sequence that, yes, it can wait until morning. <clears throat> you know, he knows it's night and he knows that things should be able to wait until morning. But kind of nodding toward his behavior back at the dream, you know, it's like he's almost kind of in a weird state already. and. um so he um so the phone interrupted him reading Audrey's note and then he gets interrupted from his phone call by a knock at the door which he assumes is the 24 hour room service and um yeah and then what what do you get um he he puts the phone down just like Audrey's letter and then he sees the gun and shots ring out and it's cut to black and again with the sound um the the only sound we hear is a body dropping so like it it's not visual it's another sound trick that um that uh frost included now this brings to mind another 25 while writer jc hotchkiss she wrote a um a three-part article series called reincarnation and the return and um she's basically uh making a case that cooper dies here and that the entire rest of the series is a dream. And um, you can kind of see it happening. You know, it's like he's, he's already kind of primed for that sort of mentality. Um, I could see, you know, he's already connected to the Red Room in a dream. So, like, there's, there's a good case to be made that um, everything from this point forward is kind of like what, um, you know, some of the interpretations about the return where people are thinking that, like, you know, everything in the show is like an aspect of Cooper as he processes through um, the, the Bardo and the, the cycles of reincarnation or whatever. Um, 
you know, or as he's like collecting himself into one unified, um, one unified self, you know, like incorporate, um, oh shoot, um, incorporating his shadow or integrating, um, the, the, the Jungian way of talking about it, um, where you, you kind of pull yourself together so that you can kind of like evolve yourself. And that goes into the interpersonal alchemy and all that. So, I mean, there's, there's so many different ways that you can go from this where, you know, maybe Cooper did die and, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing the rest of the series from this point forward as a dream. Um, I will, I will entertain that. I don't, I don't, I don't believe in that because I tend to side with there's also a side of reality going along with a side of the metaphysical because I believe all the characters deserve um, proper agency for their own actions or inactions. Um, but I mean, it really does fit in with uh, Frost Jungian point of view and um, Lynch's. Um, uh, unified field through meditation you know it's like they're they're all they're all kind of related um but it's it's a weird town that already behaves um you know it, it behaves like it's under the influence of the woods because it is <clears throat> you know I, I i i respect the dream theories and you know it could be a thing but i do believe that um yeah, I mean the 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 agency of characters is pretty important, and you know removing characters' agencies gives gives the viewers basically this point of view of like you know why are we watching this? There's no stakes, nothing matters. It's all just a dream. Um, I tend to think that if something is all just a dream, like it would be a lot more likely that like it would occur after he bodily enters the red room in episode twenty nine. Um, but you know, we, we can't really talk about whether season three is all a dream or not. And we can't really talk about season two, if it's all a dream or partially or not, um, until we get there. And, um, yeah, I mean, we're pretty much out of episode here and, you know, before we can get to any of that and before we can even get to season two, there's the secret dire. Oh boy. There's the secret diary of Laura Palmer, and that's the next main thing we're going to go to, because while I'm doing this podcast, I'm doing it in sequential order of release. And the next thing in line we get is the secret diary of Laura Palmer. As for now, we are basically done with episode seven. So you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as Oh God, It Hurts, and that's HZ as in Hurts, and Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content on many other TV shows at TVObsessive.com. If you want to be part of our monthly mailbag episodes, send any questions, comments, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. 
And we'll see you next time at one of those monthly mailbag episodes to give me a little bit more time to uh, properly get through The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer in as sensitive way as possible. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams.